cybersecurity now gets an immense amount of attention. It hasn't always been this way, but there were people who were thinking about this 20 or even 30 years ago. I'm Jim Lewis, Senior Vice President and Director of the Technology Policy Program here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This podcast, Cyber from the Start, goes to the roots of cybersecurity. It looks at how we develop the policies we have for critical infrastructure, surveillance, espionage, warfare, and privacy. Looking at this and talking to the people who helped lay the foundations will help us see where we started and how we ended up where we are today. Shoban Gorman was one of the pioneering reporters to start looking at cybersecurity more than a decade ago. She's left journalism, says it's a dying industry. We've talked to her about what it was like to cover NSA back at the dawn of the cyber age. How did you get into cybersecurity? I got into it a little bit backwards. Uh, It was about 2005 or 2006, and I was a reporter for the Baltimore Sun in the Washington Bureau, and I was covering intelligence and national security, uh, obviously for an audience that was uh, more interested than than others in what the National Security Agency was up to. And so I spent probably about 50% of my time when I was at the Sun covering what the NSA was up to. And at the time, obviously, a lot of it was surveillance, because that is indeed what NSA does. But increasingly, uh, there was a push within NSA to do more of what would become known as cybersecurity in their information assurance directorate. Obviously, that group had been doing what's now known as cybersecurity forever and ever, but it was becoming a more prominent activity. Uh, And then it also got the attention of the then uh, director of national intelligence, Mike McConnell, who made it a big national Mm -hmm. push. So how hard was it to work with NSA? You want to describe your relationship to the extent you feel comfortable? Uh, It was a pretty straightforward relationship. I would send them my questions and they would wait three days and then get back with a no comment. (laughs) But you found ways around that. I did. I would talk to other people who weren't in the press office, uh-huh. uh, and um, and and that became a, a pretty useful source of information. Um, when I started covering NSA for the Baltimore Sun, uh, a colleague of mine, Tom Bowman, who is now actually with NPR, he was covering the Pentagon at the mm-hmm. time, gave me the best advice. He said, write about the things the employees care about. And so that's exactly mm-hmm. what I did. Um, and they cared about the fact that they had a new director. So Keith Alexander came in. Um, And so that was an opportunity to obviously write about Mm -hmm. what were the issues that he was inheriting. And the more and more that you wrote about NSA for the Baltimore Sun, Mm -hmm. where that was their readership area, and this was also at a time when more people read newspapers than they do now, they they started to come to me. And that made reporting more interesting at that Mm -hmm. point. You didn't have a technical background, though, did you? I mean... What was your background? You weren't you weren't like a technology reporter. Not at all. Um, I was actually covering education policy on 9/11, uh-huh. and then on 9/12, I was no longer covering education policy. <laughs> I was at a magazine called National Journal at the uh-huh. time, sure. and ended up covering sort of the post 9/11 sort of panoply of issues that was this ever evolving set of things. By about 2004, uh, I was largely focused on intelligence, and so from that point on, I was that was the lens through which I was viewing things. And when I was at the Baltimore Sun, I. I I was viewing uh, intelligence largely through what NSA was up to, 
do. And that's mm-hmm. how I, I kind of came into cybersecurity backwards, looking at it more yeah. through the national security context. What we found in these talks has been there's two streams. There's the technical stream with the people who are geeks, and they had a very geek-like view of cybersecurity. And then there's the intel stream. And that tended to lead more to the policy issues than you might have thought. So if you had to pick one, uh, that would probably be the better one, at least from figuring out where policy issues would lie. But when did you start writing about policy as opposed to you were at The Sun, you were more of a day-to-day reporter, more of a... Yeah, but I was writing more investigative pieces as well. And so, you know, there was an encryption effort at NSA that went south, and I had written about that. That was like in 2006. And then there was this effort within NSA that was to become known as the National Comprehensive Cybersecurity Initiative. Mm -hmm. And that was really how I I got into it. In fact, that was one of the last stories I wrote for the Baltimore Sun. I went over to the Wall Street Journal in in the latter part of 2007. And I said, you know, I've just been starting to cover the cybersecurity stuff. I think Uh it would be really useful for a business audience. And my editor said, well, you know, that's really one of the reasons why we hired you, but we don't understand it. And so (laughs) I'm not really sure that there's that much to say right now. Um, You've got to prove it to us that this is worth writing about. Did you have that trouble the whole time you were there having to prove the worth of cybersecurity stories? I spent the first year trying to persuade the leadership of the Wall Street Journal that cybersecurity was worth covering, particularly for a business audience. Uh And then I succeeded and got a little bit of a be careful what you wish for because I spent all of 2008 trying to persuade them that it was worth covering. And I spent all of 2009 covering mostly cybersecurity, even though <laughs> I was also covering you the counterterrorism. Intel reporter, yeah. You? yeah, okay. So there was, there was plenty to write about. Plenty to write about. That's right. You brought it up kind of indirectly, but uh, you had a lot of insight into the, all the programs that began with the letter T at NSA. I did. What was that like? Uh, it and was. I can't remember Transformers. No, that's the show. <laughs> Trailblazer, Trailblazer, which then gave Tempest. way to Turbulence. Turbulence. I think Tempest was part of that. There okay. were all these TU programs yeah. um, that were a group of programs that sort of evolved over time. That were NSA's effort, basically, to figure out how to spy in the age of the internet. Um, mm-hmm. In the kind of early 2000s, it felt like it was constantly behind in terms of being able to hmm. uh, understand, analyze, assimilate all the information that was going around on the internet. And so it adopted a series of generally failed programs. Uh, they had pieces of it that succeeded, but largely the, these were big lumbering programs that were kind of beyond anyone's managing. Um, and then they <laughs> failed. And so um, they did have spinoffs, uh, one of which became actually President Bush's warrantless surveillance program. So there were pieces of them that uh, you can, we, we can have a larger discussion about the merits or demerits of the warrantless surveillance program. But, um, you know, there were pieces of that turbulence program that that, that worked um, and mm-hmm. spun off in, in that direction. The piece that ended up spinning out into the warrantless surveillance program was actually what was internally known uh, as Thin Thread and was a very controversial program. Mm-hmm. Uh, controversial inside or outside? Inside. It wasn't mm-hmm. particularly known outside. Um, at one point, someone described to me as there were there were religious wars inside of NSA over this program because it was actually a pretty low budget program um, that did figure out how to analyze large volumes of data. There were internal debates about whether it had sufficient privacy protections. What was interesting was after 9-11, the administration no longer was as concerned about privacy protections. And so basically the privacy protections that were there got stripped out and that hmm. became the basis for the warrantless surveillance program. And 
What was sort of the internal debate at NSA that you were finding out then over this? There were people who were uncomfortable? The argument against the ThinThread program at the time was around privacy controls mm-hmm. and whether they were sufficient. That was sort of the policy debate. Yeah. My understanding was the real debate was just over which horse you were going to ride. And there was this large trailblazer program that was big and expensive and had the support of leadership. And then there was sort of this startup ThinThread program <laughs> that was less expensive and, depending on who you talk to, more effective. So if you put your CT hat on for a minute. Did you think these programs were helpful? Did you think they were valuable? Do you know? I mean, is that something? It's this ongoing debate. I think that what NSA failed to do, and we saw this when the Snowden revelations happened, but I certainly felt it many years earlier, was uh, they failed to make the case publicly for it, Mm -hmm. right? They tried to do all of these activities in secret, and that's very hard to do effectively in a democracy, at least for an extended period of time. And so when you are pushing the envelope on particularly uh, the collection of types of domestic information, this may not be uh, super personal data. It may Mm -hmm. be, you know, what's called metadata data or kind of the data about the data, but having people not understand what information you're actually collecting on innocent civilians um, and and creating a justification for it is going to end you up in a bad place. And that's ultimately where they found themselves. How did you identify the things you did stories on? Did you have an agenda when you went in or did you, was it listening to the people at the agency or what? At some point, probably at least when you moved to the journal, your portfolio broadened and the things you wrote about got a bigger focus. So what did you do to identify those things? What is it? Because you wrote on more than just NSA. Oh, sure. I mean, um, the intelligence and and cybersecurity um, beats, if you will, Mm -hmm. are highly dependent on sourcing. Um, And this is why you have people covering them for a long time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ultimately, one of the reasons why I decided to leave journalism was I just felt like I had been covering the same thing for too long. And yet I didn't want to cover anything else because I thought it was really cool. Um, (laughs) And at some point, you just need to do something differently. Uh, But you know, it takes a long time to build those sources. And essentially, at least maybe this is just my lack of creativity, but I would have sort of different sets of people who I would just check in with regularly Mm -hmm. and ask what it was that they were, you know, what, what are you hearing? You know, it may be because it's, it's tied to uh, something that you hear that the administration is looking into at the time, or that a particular uh, congressional committee is looking into, or that a foreign adversary is looking into, and you want to understand what the U.S. is doing vis-a-vis that. And so depending on the topic area, I would have, you know, a handful of people who I would just check in with. And this wasn't for a a conversation even about a specific Mm -hmm. story, but more just around a topic Mm -hmm. area to try to surface what were the important and interesting things going on at the time. How did your audience change when you were doing this? You said at The Sun you were writing largely for the community. Uh, But when you got to the journal, you had a global audience. What did it look like as it changed? And particularly as the topic went from being sort of a niche topic to uh, being one that now everyone and their dog does cybersecurity? Well, uh, I mean, when I was covering these mm. types of issues for The Sun, you ended up having a much more direct connection with the people who were reading. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, mm. one of the reasons why I ended up covering NSA more than I had expected at the Baltimore Sun was the editor of the paper lived in a neighborhood where there were a lot of senior NSA officials. He loved nothing more than to go to blog parties and have them complain to him about The Sun coverage, not because it was wrong, but they just didn't like being covered. And so um, that created a certain set of um, interests within the paper that they wanted more NSA coverage, um, not just 
for block parties, but he thought that it was a worthwhile thing to cover. Um, when I when I got to the journal, um, you know, there were it just it is certainly a broader set of issues that you're covering um, vis-a-vis cybersecurity. It was the intersection primarily of um, you know cyber attacks on corporations and nation states. That was the area where I focused most of my attention because I was still focused largely on national security. Mm-hmm. In fact, after that sort of year long lobbying campaign that I undertook. Um, you know, and found myself covering a lot of cybersecurity stories. I actually said we need we need a separate cybersecurity reporter who's going to cover corporate cybersecurity, mm-hmm. and they created that beat. And I worked with that reporter very closely on the nation state related issues or cybersecurity issues where there was some sort of national security element to it. So, you know, stealing the plans for the joint strike fighter um, that would be an example, mm-hmm. or um, Russian and Chinese cyber spies in the electric grid that would be another example. Sure. What are the stories you remember? What were your favorite stories? Well, those two were actually two of my favorites in the cybersecurity arena because yeah. those were the first two that I did at the journal that they let me write, that they said, OK, you have enough here that this uh-huh. is like a legitimate story to go write. Um, you know, another one that I enjoyed simply because it took so long to figure out what was really going on was actually the um, Iranian-backed militants in Iraq who were intercepting U.S. drone feed. Um, uh-huh. led downloading it onto their laptop and it was discovered by... I remember talking about that with you. Probably, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, those were Uplink, those were not downlink. That was a good story. Um, what were the ones that you thought got the most interest? I mean, who were you shooting for for readership? At the Journal, I was just shooting for, you know, if you're talking about the cybersecurity stories yeah. um, as opposed to sort of broader counterterrorism stories, you know, I mean, I was writing for a business audience mm-hmm. and I spent a lot of time trying to pull stories together that would be persuasive to a business audience that this is something that they should care about. Because if you think about where people's thinking was in 2000, say 2009, 2010, it was an issue that companies just tried to, quote unquote, get away with, right? That they would have all of this data stolen and they just didn't want anybody to know. And, you know, part of what I was doing was not picking on companies, but more, you know, you've got to pick some examples to demonstrate to folks that this is happening on a fairly wide scale basis. And people just don't appreciate the scope of the issue because everyone's keeping it secret. And it was interesting to me that oftentimes it was harder to report cybersecurity stories than it was to report counterterrorism stories, mm. even with when you're talking about sort of terrorist plots where people are going to die. I mean, sometimes, you know, you could have a cybersecurity plot where people would die, but less often, obviously. So this is jumping around a little bit, but how have you seen that change? Have you, how have you seen companies' attitudes change? And in part, you're, I want to talk about this at the end. We don't have to talk about it now, but you've in some ways helped them change their attitudes towards how to treat these stories. Hopefully. In 2009, say, mm-hmm. um, when we were talking about the Joint Strike Fighters' plans being stolen by the Chinese, I mean, this had been under investigation by the military for, I think, more than a year at mm-hmm. the time. And yet, you know, nobody would acknowledge that this had happened. Um, it was interesting because actually a year later, and in fact, I believe it was at a CSIS event when General Alexander was speaking. Afterwards, several reporters came up to him. And I I don't even recall what the question was, but he confirmed that the Joint Strike Fighter had been breached. Um, And that was like the first official confirmation a year after the story had been um, written. And so uh, it was very, very hard 
to just get anybody in government, in companies, um, to acknowledge that this was happening. And the reporter in me thought that this was an enormous disservice, right? Like, mm-hmm. how, how are other companies supposed to, um, you know, start putting together the programs that they need to put together on cybersecurity in order to protect themselves if no one will believe that it's an issue? Um, and I think over the last 10 years now, we've seen a significant evolution. And I actually credit the U.S. government with a fair amount of that Hmm. awareness raising, right? Without the National Comprehensive Cybersecurity Initiative, it wouldn't have elevated the issue within the U.S. government, and it wouldn't have gotten folks in the U.S. government talking about it more as a threat, which ultimately sends a signal um, certainly to U.S. companies, but to other governments, other companies uh, around the world. And I mean, the U.K. government waited until the U.S. government figured out how it was going to structure some of its cybersecurity uh, agencies and infrastructure before it decided how to build its you know, version of that. And mm-hmm. so once the U.S. was pushing ahead, you saw other governments following, following suit, and you did see companies starting to take it more seriously. Mm. Um, I think that companies sort of lagged the, the governments, uh, but that's to, that's to be expected. They didn't have the, the information and the intelligence to know how bad it was. This is always sort of a murky area. You worked in murky areas. I specialize in murky areas. Murky, yeah. And did that mean for your editors and for sourcing? I mean, did they have threshold? Did you train them over the years? Did they eventually give up? I mean... You wear them down and then they give up. Yeah. Um, Because a lot of times you're not going to get the footnote that some people might want. You're almost never going to get the footnote (laughs) that some people might want. You know, I think that ultimately journalists mainly have their reputations to rely on. And that's mm. actually what keeps it's what kept me in check, regardless of what publication you're you're working for. Um, mm. It's your name on that on that article. And if you can't back it up, whether the sources are named or not, the information in it has to be true. And if it's not, then that's your reputation on the line. Um, not only is it embarrassing, it'll probably prevent you from getting another job. Mm-hmm. And so there actually are a fair amount of incentives in there, or there were at the time. We don't have to go on a big fake news discussion. Um, but, you know, certainly uh, back in, you know, the 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 kind of 2010, 2013, 14 kind of time period, um, there was a lot of reporting going on that was relying on anonymous sources because to report on what was going on, particularly frankly, in cybersecurity, which was an area that people were very secretive about, the only way you could get them to talk to you was off the record and then eventually um, on background, which in reporting sort of nomenclature Mm -hmm. means that you could use the information, but it couldn't be cited to somebody by name. Um, You'd have to sort of make it a more general citation. So when I used to do this, and one of the reasons I wanted to get you in here first was when I thought of the best reporters in cybersecurity, I always thought of you... Uh, Sanger and Nakashima. And so you were the guys that when I went overseas, people would show me your stories, which was really <laughs> weird. It's like in uh, Asian Before or after they were published? Uh, that's a darn good question. I think after. And they would say, but what of these? And so it's like, well, I'm you know, not responsible for reporters. But when you look at the field now, I mean, you were one of the pioneers. You really shaped it. What do you think of the field now? I mean, everyone writes, there's a lot of writing on cybersecurity. It's really broad. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's interesting because if you look at the, when sort of the major papers started writing on it, 
um, it kind of all happened at the same time. And it mm-hmm. wasn't by coordination because Lord knows the Journal and the, the New York Times are not coordinating on who's going to cover what subjects. <laughs> um, but at that time, you know, I was working on some stories and David Sanger came out with a whole series. And it was just it was sort of that spring and summer of 2009 when the major newspapers mm-hmm. really started covering it. And what was interesting was if you start looking at um, just sort of the challenging business model that is the news media, you've seen a trend toward, uh, and this is in a lot of publications, verticals, right? So Mm -hmm. on particular subject areas, a media outlet will break out uh, a whole newsletter or set of uh, publications, you know, daily or weekly publications on a particular subject matter. And so that's been the real shift, I think, that, you know, whether it's the Wall Street Journal or Politico or any number of other um, publications, you see these verticals now that focus on cybersecurity in in an in-depth way um, and in a way that the major papers would never cover it because it's mm-hmm. it's catering to a different audience. Um, in fact, the, the journal has, um, you know, CIO journal in addition to its its cybersecurity um, vertical newsletter. And so um, I just think that you've seen a, a broader sort of a diversification of the types of coverage that cybersecurity gets. Um, you know, at the time that I was starting to write on it, and this would have been true for David Sanger as well, we were focused on the national security piece. And I think that you see much more coverage of the corporate side, which is hugely important mm-hmm. because, I mean, now in sort of my, my, my current job, I work entirely with companies um, on these types of things. And, um, you know, they're they're really the front lines when it comes to trying to fend off uh, different types of hacking. Which agency was hardest to work with? And did that change over time? NSA. You worked with, NSA was the hardest. But you also did CIA and CIA FBI. CIA was, was not hard to work with. FBI was in the middle. That's interesting. Well, maybe we could um, talk a little bit about your current job, if that's okay. Of course. Uh, because... It is sort of a natural transition. So tell us what you do. You're uh, kind of on the other side now. I'm on the opposite side. It's the flip side. Yeah. Um, depending on the audience, uh, I, I could describe it different ways. Um, to a corporate audience, I can say things like, I was part of the problem and now I'm part of the solution. But to journalists, I would <laughs> do you not say that in your pitches? Not in pitches, but sometimes it'll usually get a laugh if you say that to a corporate audience. Because <laughs> um, they all, they're all scared of journalists. It's so funny because reporters are not scary. Uh. Um, at least I don't find them scary. But uh, anyway, what what I what I do now is I um, I'm in um, strategic corporate communications. I work at a firm called the Brunswick Group, and I co-lead our cybersecurity and privacy practice. Uh, mm-hmm. And I joined Brunswick about four and a half years ago from the journal um, to help build out that practice. And so um, I, I probably spend about seventy or yeah about seventy percent of my time uh, on cybersecurity issues, specifically working with companies either um, companies that want to do uh, preparation around Mm. a potential cyber incident in the future, um, planning how it is that they would respond. So when they do have to respond, they're doing it in a more thoughtful, managed way. Or I help companies that are in the middle of a breach. Um, I've got a couple of those going um, at this point in time. Um, And I also work with companies that are dealing with um, either public affairs issues as it has to do with um, cybersecurity matters, you know, just public policy sorts Mm. of issues, shaping the debate, whatever their involvement is in that debate, or um, carving out a leadership position in their industry on Mm -hmm. cybersecurity. Why do they want a leadership position? 
Well, if if you are in an industry where it is uh, kind of an, an ongoing or an emerging issue, say um, healthcare or life sciences, and it's an area that your company has focused on a lot, um, and say you're working with HHS or the FDA, um, maybe it makes sense to convene more conversations on that publicly and to drive a more public conversation because a lot of these, a lot of cybersecurity issues, and this is true in most industries, I would say, a lot of them are industry-wide issues, right? That's why you have the defense sector that created the defense industrial base many, many years ago, right? Because they recognize that there are some elements of cybersecurity that are industry-wide. That's why you have the proliferation of these these ISACs or these information-sharing clearinghouses, because there's some commonality there. And so in in some circumstances, companies think that it would it's an important issue for them to take a leadership position on. If you were going to put people on a scale, companies on a scale, where they look at cybersecurity as a cost driver or they look at it as a profit center. Where do you put most of them now and maybe how do you break that up by sector? A profit center? Well, it used to the be only that ones that see it as a profit center are the cybersecurity companies. Oh, is that right? Okay. <laughs> but something they have to do. It used to be this is a pain, make it go away. Uh, this is just a cost. Yeah. Is that still true? Um, I think it's true, but I think that people see the necessity of it now much more than they used to because, um, and I'm sure you've seen this in the conversations that you've had with with folks as well, I would say particularly in the last three years or so, there's been a steady shift toward uh, companies viewing cybersecurity as a business-wide risk issue, something that they need to assess from a variety of angles, certainly security and technical, but also legal. And then we dealt we deal with the reputational side of things. And, you know, I mean, a good a good day for a breach client of ours is one that every is is when everybody forgets about their breach, right? So it's only the ones that are handled spectacularly badly that you remember and that have kind of a continuing um, kind of reputational cost and sometimes financial cost over time. So when they call you up, what what is it they ask for, and what is it you tell Help. them to do? <laughs> you know, no, I, in hysteria, calmness. Where does it? It's it's usually a, a position of just unknowing mm-hmm. what is next. Right? These are oftentimes companies that are very good at managing crises, managing issues. They may not have dealt with a crisis uh, where. You know that there's a problem and you don't know the scope or scale of it. And you may not know that for weeks or months. And you may have a reporter calling you and you may have to say something to that reporter mm-hmm. that doesn't convey that you're hiding under mm-hmm. your desk, that conveys <laughs> that you're on top of it, right? That you're looking into it and that you are demonstrating competency and confidence. And so we will work with companies to understand what the issue is, to understand what groups of people are the most affected. Is it business partners? Is it consumers? Is it the public? Um, you know, What are the audiences that are going to care the most about this? And which of those audiences do you care most about from your business perspective? And how do we figure out how we're going to explain what's going on to those audiences? And it might just be we're looking into it. We're coordinating with law enforcement. We've got some of the best forensic specialists, you know, around Mm -hmm. looking at it. And, you know, we'll share more information when we can. But something that conveys that you're on top of it um, and that you have you have 
always taken cybersecurity seriously, or at least certainly in recent years. It's not something that you were asleep at the switch and this happened, right? And so, you know, you have to be able to demonstrate mm-hmm. these are the steps that we, you know, that, that we that we take regularly. And these are sort of the, the kinds of um, the updates that we make regularly to our systems. You don't necessarily have to get into the, the security specifics, but you need to convey that you didn't just awaken and discover that cybersecurity was an issue the minute that you were breached. Is it easier now to get information? Do you have access to more information? Or was it easier when you were a reporter? So you hear about a breach. Of course, you're working with the the victim. So that gives you an insight that you didn't have before. But in general, on threat, on potential attackers, on crime states, how do things stack up compared to, say, five years ago? Um, I think that... The staying power of sort of extortion um, Mm. has been interesting Mm. uh, because we saw that emerge probably three, four years Mm. ago as a Mm -hmm. real thing. Now, this is obviously extortion has been around forever, but in a cyber context, um, you know, it had been kind of slowly emerging. But I think that we saw sort of increasing volumes of it you know, maybe starting three years ago or so. And I think that, you know, criminals have just found it to be or, or you know, state-based actors have just found it to be extraordinarily effective. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that there hasn't been a great way to counter that is um, frustrating and maybe not surprising just because it's a very hard problem. Um, but that's certainly a trend that I, I've seen that has had a lot of staying power. Um, back when I was covering cybersecurity, everybody kept saying that you know the next big threat is data manipulation. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's some of that that's going on. I certainly don't have not seen examples of it. It's not something you hear yeah. about happening regularly. And so to me, it's interesting that we haven't seen more of that because one would think that that would create a lot of problems in a lot of different places. Yeah. Do you have a favorite hack? Um. That's my, really my, tough. My current favorite is the uh, uh, internet-connected goldfish tank, which gave people access to a casino. Oh, so that's wonderful. That was cool. Uh, and I don't know, something like that or, you know, any of the big ones, What which, which sticks out in your mind? This wasn't the big one, but it was um, – and, and part of it is that – I now tend to look at some of these things through the communications lens a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And the 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 hacking episodes where um, the the perpetrator actually does his own PR, mm-hmm. I find well, – we'll assume it's a he, maybe sir. Um, I find them quite interesting just because as a reporter, when I was covering cybersecurity issues, when a company was breached – um, figuring out the evidence of mm. that was very challenging. That was well before hackers were ever considering, oh, we could just put this information out there and and all of a sudden then it's going to be hard to deny. I think right. in 2010, Anonymous actually sort of pioneered that, mm-hmm. that tactic. But um, it didn't really become all that popular. And I think that in the last few years, we've now seen there's you know a, 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 either a hacking group or a hacker calling uh, himself the dark overlord that does um, you know a lot of his own publicity – 
um, sometimes in very sort of awful, threatening fashion. Um, you know, the hacker who went after, or probably hackers who went out after HBO, um, who later faced an indictment, I think it was Iranian hackers, um, you know, they they took the communication that HBO did with them and um, put it on a Star Wars-like scroll across mm-hmm. the screen, playing it to game of, the Game of Thrones theme, right? So that was a very dramatic way to kind of play up you know, hey, I've got this yeah. is this is how I'm trying to get leverage over you in this circumstance. So I think it's not necessarily one hack. It's sometimes the techniques, I think, that that stick out. Does all of this affect your own use of technology? I mean, are you I don't really I have some things I do, but I don't I don't worry that much. So how about you? How about your kids? But first you and your kids. <laughs> I'm very anti-electronics with kids. So actually, my daughter uh, has sometimes use of an iPad, and that's it. But she's eight. So. Oh, okay. Um, the complaints will increase in volume. I know. I, I, <laughs> I'm quite certain of that. Uh, but for me personally, I mean, I, I, try, I try to be careful. Um, you try not to be stupid about things mm-hmm. like phishing emails. Um, mm-hmm. But... You also need to operate under the assumption that you're kind of always at risk and that probably should change everybody's behavior more than it actually does. And I would not leave myself out of that sort of uh, admonition. So last question. Um, One of the things that you did really well and that some of the former directors of NSA used to complain about is you brought transparency to a lot of their efforts and focus onto some of these big issues like the F-35 hack that didn't exist before. So looking back, where do you think we are now on transparency? What more do we need to do? I think it has improved um, in that the government has tried to create more incentives for companies to be transparent. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the SEC guidelines when they first came out Mm -hmm. in 2011 were, one, criticized because they were just guidelines. And two, um, I think companies had a pretty – uh, could have all kinds of interpretations as to what was actually required of them in terms of reporting. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that in terms of working with companies at this point, there's now sort of the expectation for companies that if there's an incident and you can make a reasonable argument that it's having a material impact, you you need to report it to the SEC. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also an understanding that, frankly, if, if a data breach to your company puts at risk um, consumer data, particularly something like usernames and passwords that people may use for other data, other mm-hmm. other accounts. Speaking of bad cybersecurity practices. Exactly. Well, that's, yes, that's not recommended for any yeah. number of reasons. Um, yet everybody does it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that companies have a little bit more of a public responsibility to uh, give consumers that information so that they can better protect themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually think that the government is doing a terrible job when it mm-hmm. comes to transparency of its own activities. Um, and there's been an ongoing b- debate for, for years about sort of sure. how much the U.S. government should talk about what it can do. Does that create deterrence? Does it, you know, create security weaknesses? Um, but I think that, you know, the approach that, that we've had so far around secrecy has arguably not made the world a safer place when it comes to cybersecurity. And I do think that some rethinking around um, sort of how transparent um, the U.S. government and, and other governments mm-hmm. are um, on their cybersecurity activities uh, is is a worthwhile conversation to have. When you say activities, you mean stuff they're actually doing, not their policies. Offense and, and defense. Okay. That would be tough. Well, I mean, I'm not saying you give away the keys to the kingdom, but if you talk generally about capabilities, 
you know, that there could be some deterrence benefit there. This is kind of the Dr. Strangelove argument, you know, that it doesn't do any good to have a doomsday machine if you don't tell anyone. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, How much do you do with Congress now? How much did you do then? What changes do you... So I'll tell you one of the changes I see, which is that when I used to go up to brief on the Hill... One of the first things I do is I would look on the member's desk to see if they had a yellow legal pad because that meant they were still writing things out longhand. Now you don't see really any yellow legal pads. You know, um, you don't see too many people saying, um, send me an email and I'll have my secretary print it out. Right? Just, so what do you see the change from when you started doing this? Did you do a lot with the Hill? How have things changed? Um, well, as as a reporter, yes, I mean you're you're yeah. you're you're talking with people on the Hill all the time, um, you know, both both staff and members of Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, at at that time, you know, let's say ten years ago, um, yeah, I mean, I think that there, even just smartphones were still a relatively new thing, and mm-hmm. so the idea that members of Congress are going to be well versed in um, how to use sort of emerging technology, so to speak, like smartphones were at the time, um, or, you know, sort of be well-versed in, in, you know, encrypted communications. I mean, even things like, um, you know, Signal or WhatsApp, you know, I mean, all these types of additional communications mechanisms mm-hmm. that that have evolved over the last several years, I think, um, you know, push everybody, including members of Congress, perhaps somewhat reluctantly, um, you know, toward at Mm. least understanding the technology that they're using a little bit more. Um, I still wouldn't think that I I, I still don't think that that members of Congress are terribly tech savvy. Um, You know, when you see the hearings on the Hill where they're asking questions, particularly of tech executives, usually they're not very sophisticated. Um, But you also are seeing a huge demographic shift within Congress now. Mm -hmm. And I do Mm -hmm. think that given uh, the, the young class of freshmen in both parties um, that in fairly in a fairly short span of time you will probably see um, slightly at least slightly more um, uh, conversations about technology on the hill that are starting from a, a higher base of knowledge still that doesn't mean that, that mm. the, this is a group of people who's particularly focused on the security of that data a lot of times people are very focused on social media and that's sort of like the opposite of secure or at least it's it's not it, it doesn't inherently create a, a security conversation. Wearing both your former hat and your current hat, do you think we need regulation? Do you need these needs to change with liability or standards or need a bigger government role in making this a more secure space? Well, I feel like I, I cover I covered the the push to create cybersecurity standards at least 10 years ago. Um, <laughs> and so we still don't have those. Yeah. Um you know, I do think that there are certainly areas where it would be really useful. And I think that it may not be legislation passing, but it may be more at the agency level where, um, you know, and I, I'm just I'm, I'm picking you know, sort right. of uh, at random. But, you know, on the energy front, if you have, you know, the Department of Energy working with um you know, the energy sector on standards. I mean, there's been some of that, but I think it's still probably considered largely self-policing, you know, that maybe there's more work that could be done there. But I do think that the, the, the activities required vary enough 
um, by sector, by industry, that may not make sense. I mean, we have the NIST framework, right? And so the National Institute of Standards and Technology got together and put together, you know, their own framework. So there's some of that there. And if industries will pick that up and actually build off mm-hmm. of it, which is, I believe, what the original intent was, yeah. then we could probably make a lot more progress. Um, and I do think that it needs to be something where government and industry is involved. The specific mechanism of it, I'm sort of agnostic on it, as long as it actually elevates sort of the 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 level of cybersecurity for kind of the lowest common denominator within the industry. I still think that there's a ton of work to be done there. Really, the last question: When you left, you told me that uh, journalism was a dying industry. <laughs> it's not fair. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking we can we can trim this part, okay. or that maybe it was. I don't think you said print. I think you said journalism. I think that the, the the business model for the because that's really stuck with me because my sometimes my younger older son wants to go into journalism and I think well you know I know some people who aren't sure that's a good idea. I think that journalism plays an incredibly important role in society and more so now than it ever has uh-huh. in the area of, in the era of debates over fake news and. Um, but it's you know, evolving. Or is it going away or is it evolving? Well, I still think it's searching for a business model. So the challenge is that there is more information than ever. There are fewer and fewer arbiters of that information over time. Um, You know, witness the death of local local newspapers, local journalism, right? And I think that that's the the public accountability role that journalism plays is critical. And I don't think it can be replicated by anybody else, any other institution. Mm -hmm. And so I hope for all of our sake that there is, um, you know, that the media industry does evolve a business model that will ultimately be uh, sustainable. But right now, I mean, when I talk to friends of mine who are in print journalism, which I still think ends up be, being the sort of the most um, investigative, that ends up being kind of ground zero for really breaking news because it's journalists that, you know, will have a little bit more time to put together a thoughtful story than you can maybe in other, other media, whether it's blogs <laughs> or TV or what have you. You know, I mean, Many of the print journalists I know. I hate blogs. <laughs> yeah, many of the many of the print journalists I know. Scream of consciousness. I, yeah, no, yeah. it's crazy. But yeah. but many of the the print journalists I know um, can only keep their day job because they have side TV contracts or book contracts oh, or okay. speaking contracts, and so it's sort of like all these mm-hmm. all these side deals that you have to do just to be able to to go forth and do your real day job. And so, um, you know, that combined with the fact that pretty much all journalists work 24-7 at this point um, and don't get compensated for it, there's still something broken in that. And I, I really hope that over a fairly short period of time, there's there's a solution to that. Thanks for listening to Cyber From The Start. You can hear an unedited full version of my interview on the Technology Policy Program page at CSIS.org. There's some interesting stuff in those longer interviews. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. See you on the next episode of Cyber from the Start.